Well, many of you at this point have probably heard that our family recently got a puppy. Uh, yeah, Luna is now a three-month-old Labradoodle, and by all accounts, she's a good puppy. Uh, she's not good because she's particularly well-behaved, like she's a puppy after all. I mean, she's getting better about jumping up, but when it's rainy, I often have to change my pants a couple times because they're muddy paws. And she's getting better about not biting, although she got a vein in my mother-in-law's hand and escorted blood last week. It's amazing. Um, she's getting better about sitting and laying down like when she feels like it. I, I sometimes wonder if she has some cat in her. Um, the other day, she's in the backyard digging kind of crazy next to the fence as I was trying to tell her not to do that. And then on the other side of the fence, this, the neighbor's giant Rottweiler just gave a low growl. And she instantly stops digging, beelines right for me, and is shivering in my arms with her head in my shoulder. Luna is a good puppy, not because she's mature or obedient or well-behaved. She's a good puppy because she knows her family, and she's rightly related to us. When Luna found herself desperate in this moment, she ran to me, not because she was being good or because she thought she deserved protection. She ran to me because she trusted me to be safe and a shelter. And that's what makes her good, her relationship to her master and to her family. Now, I've just broken like two major preaching pet peeves, preachers that show pictures of their pets and their families. So forgive me. I just got it all out of the way for the year. Um, there you go. For the past several weeks, we've been walking through 1 Samuel together uh, in these sermon times, and we've been kind of seeing this tale of two kings. You've got Saul, who is the king of Israel. He's the active king of Israel, uh, and, but he is on the decline, like God has rejected him. And then you've got David, who's anointed king, but he's not king yet because Saul's still king, and God seems to be with David. And the more we compare these two men, the more disturbing similarities we see between them, and we also see some crucial differences. So like both David and Saul have been prone to have violent streaks. They both tend to lead with their passions, which gets them in trouble. They both end up huging in, in major ways, or they, they, they end up sinning in these major ways. And if you carry out to like 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, you start to see like, wow, David, you could make a case is a worse guy than Saul. And yet the scriptures paint a picture in which Saul is clearly out of favor with God, and David is repeatedly called a man after God's own heart. Now, how can that be? Is God just playing favorites? What is it about David that makes him so close to God while Saul grows increasingly distant from God? Well, to put it simply, Saul persists in his disobedience and his rebellion, while David, even after making mistake after mistake after mistake, remains humble and repentant, and he stumbles in the right direction. He stumbles into the, the loving and merciful hands of God. While Saul repeatedly seeks God's favor without any kind of relationship with him, David is rightly related. He runs into the arms of God when he knows he's made mistakes. In general, one way to really find out who a person is on the inside, what they really believe, is to observe them when they're under duress. 
when troubles come? Where will they turn? Over the course of his life, David consistently turns to God. And this evening, we're going to learn some valuable lessons about what not to do as we see where Saul turns in his time of great need. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your living word that you've given to us. And for Samuel, we thank you that it continues to speak to us today, even though we've got to confess this is one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. Um, Chapter 28, Lord, uh, by the power of your spirit, would you speak to us? Would you um, not only help us to understand what this text meant, but help us understand what it means for us? Lord, help us to hear the good news of Jesus all over. Amen. As we've been walking through 1 Samuel, these chapters are just so rich and big. I found that the best way for me to preach it is just to preach it in chunks. So I'm going to read a few verses, we're going to go through it, and then I'll just I'll keep going that way. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. We're going to start in verse 3, because the first two verses are really the end of 27, and they don't quite go. So here's how it goes. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his town of Ramah. And Saul had expelled all the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up at uh, Shunem, while Saul gathered all of Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid, and terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Does that opening, now Samuel was dead, and they buried him in his hometown of Ramah, and all of Israel came to mourn him, does that sound familiar to anyone who's been following along in the series? Just fake it and say, yeah, because we just went through it in chapter 25. (laughs) We learn that Samuel has died, that he's been buried in his hometown of Ramah, that Israel goes out to mourn him, And it's like completely the same sentence as chapter 25 begins with. We're in 28 today, same beginning as 25. Now, why the repetition? Here's why. It is setting up a dilemma. These are desperate times. In chapter 25, when we learn that Samuel had died, the narrative centers on the desperation of David. Without Samuel the prophet to guide him, where would David turn? What would he do with his life? Now, here in chapter 28, we're reminded of Samuel's death, but this time the narrative is centered on King Saul. Samuel is gone. Saul has just learned that the Philistine army is organizing an attack to raid Israel, and he wants to know, what should I do? The text says that Saul was afraid, and then it adds in the Hebrew, it says he had gadol fear. Gadol is the Hebrew word for great. He was shaking with fear. And As we've been walking through this text, this is so Saul. All throughout his career, we have seen that fear has gotten the better of him. This isn't so much a condemnation on being afraid as it is what to do when you're afraid, right? So there's lots of things in in life that it's, it's okay to be afraid of. Like, it's okay to be afraid of a hurricane if you're in its path, right? Like, that's normal. It's it's okay uh, to be afraid of war. Like, that's that, that's, that's a thing to be afraid of. It's okay if you're the 
San Francisco 49ers to be afraid of Jadavian Clowney. I mean, that's okay. That makes a lot of sense, right, LL? But Saul's fears tended to drive him to extreme measures of disobedience against God. Okay, we read this text in the first six verses. It seems like Saul begins well. He's desperately afraid, and so apparently he turns to God for guidance. And it says that he inquired of the Lord, but God didn't speak to him in dreams, which is one of the ways that God would speak to his people. He didn't speak to him by the Urim, which is short for the Urim and the Thummim. Remember, we talked about this one time. Just to remind you, the priest of God would wear this ephod, this fancy vest, and he had a little pocket. And in the pocket were these things called Urim and Thummim. And people think that they were kind of like sticks or dice that you could say, God, if you want me to attack the Philistines, let me roll a uh, you know, snake eyes. And if you want me to not attack the Philistines, I'm going to roll a 12 or you know, whatever it was on the, on the Urim and Thummim. And that was one way they could divine the will of God. And it said that God also didn't speak to Saul through the prophets. And you might be tempted at this point to feel kind of sorry for Saul because, you know, he's trying to like, trying to seek God, and God's just not talking to him. But you might consider why that is. Saul has been known throughout his reign to be extremely religious. Saul, yes, Saul. If you read closely at all the passages about Saul, you'll see that he's extremely religious. He makes lots of sacrifices, sometimes when he's not supposed to. He hosts all kinds of religious banquets and festivals, like he keeps all the all the Passover and all of the new moon festivals and all these kind of things. He casts out the pagan mediums and spiritists from the land. We learn that in this text. But if you look deeper, Saul has been treating religion as if it were a set of actions that could win him favor with God rather than a way of relating to God. Okay? So it's the same as true like with church. Um, if you, you, people talk about Catholic guilt, like if you, if you like, oh, I used to be Catholic and I've got the Catholic guilt. And so I come to church so I can get God off my back. And I've had conversations with people like that, right? If you come to church to get God off your back, it's probably not going to work <laughs> because coming to church and hearing the word of God and worshiping God and being in community is about relating to God being in relationship with him. And so Saul seems to be going through these religious motions to gain God's favor, but he never listens to God. How do we know this? Well, Saul does all this religious stuff on the outside, but he never follows God. Want to know why the prophet stopped giving him counsel? Because they would tell him things to do and he would disobey. Want to know why God couldn't uh, uh, discern God's will through the Uman and the Thuman? Remember, remember, why that is? Because in chapter 22, he kills all the priests. And then one dude, one priest escapes with the ephod and the Urim and the Thummim. You know where he goes? He goes to David's camp. Saul has literally killed the priests of God, and now he wants to know God's will. There's a little bit of a, what did you say, Joe, earlier in the service? A little dichotomy there. Saul's life is like this stark warning that religion without relationship is dead. Doing religious stuff to gain favor with God without actually knowing God, without actually trusting and obeying him, ends up damaging your soul. Now, for those of you, this is, so let's talk for a minute. This is, this is a danger point for me. 
and for you, for anyone serving in any kind of ministry, whether that's in the church ministry or serving out in the community. You know, we talk about vocation as mission, but that's, that means you're doing ministry in your life, in your vocation. It's important for me, in fact, this last week, when I had this little time off, I was self-reflective, and I asked myself this question. Why am I doing this? <laughs> Why am I still doing this? Yes, I received a call from the Lord to go into ministry, but you know, I'm 17 years in, going on 18 years in now, and I need to ask myself for my own health and for yours, why am I still doing this? And you need to ask yourself that question too, like, what? okay, why am I doing this again? Who am I doing this for? Is it because I love God and neighbor? Fantastic. Fantastic. Is it because Jesus has led me to serve or, or to pray or, or to study? Wonderful. That's why you ought to be doing it. But if you ever get to the place where deep down, you know, like I'm really, I'm really trying to earn God's favor or I'm, I'm doing this so that people will like me or know me or I'll have a place to fit, then you could be heading down a potentially dangerous path of turning practices of devotion and obedience into practices of kind of like, like using it like magic or hollow vanity. And, and that's one of the warnings we see here in the text. For Saul, desperate times call for trying to manipulate God through religious exercises. Okay? But I think the implied counter lesson is, is that for those of us who, who practice seeking God regularly, um, trying to, uh, to, to discern his will and to do his will, desperate times call for trust in the faithfulness of God to do what he's promised to do. All right, let's continue with verses 7 through 11. All right, so Saul is desperate. He's sought God, through, and he's not hearing him through dreams. He's not hearing him through the Urim, and he's not hearing him through prophets, okay? So Saul then says to his attendants, find me a woman who's a medium, so that I may go inquire of her. Now, supposedly he's cast all of them out, but his guys just happen to know, oh, there's this lady in Indoor. Yeah, so uh, there's a lady in Indoor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. And he said, consult a spirit for me, and bring up for me the one that I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off all the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, well, who should I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. All right, what Saul does now really shows the depths of, of his fallenness, right? At the silence of God, Saul is so desperate that he seeks desperate measures. We, we learn that out of his zeal of religious practice, he's cast out all the spiritists. This is a necromancer is the word. Um, he, he, he's cast out the necromancers of the kingdom, since that, by the way, was the law uh, in the Torah, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. It talks about cast out the necromancers, those who would seek counsel from the dead. But now, in this moment of desperation, he calls his men to go find him one. 
Interestingly, when they, they, they just happen to know where she's located, right, in, in this place called Endor. It's not the forest moon from Return of the Jedi, but it is a, a little Canaanite town to the north. And so Saul takes off his royal robes and disguises himself and goes in the cover of night. And if you have an English lit degree or something like that, notice the, uh, how many times is Saul taking off his royal robes and that foreshadows him divesting his kingdom. When does he do this? In the shadow of night. Bad things tend to, you know, Judas betrays Jesus in the night. And so, okay, just fun stuff. Just pick up on that. Reading the Bible is amazing. Um, so they, they show up in Endor and, um, and he says, consult a spirit for me. Literally, the Hebrew word there is divine a spirit for me. Saul is seeking the, the help of a necromancer, a practice that is well attested to in ancient Near Eastern writings. These practitioners were believed to be able to conjure up the spirits of dead people through various rituals. And one of the main ones would be digging a pit in a specific place, and they would put blood and wine and food and maybe some sacred or expensive trinkets in this pit. And then they would think that the spirit would come up from the underworld into the pit. And sometimes this is kind of a funny one. It's just like, so it's Spirit comes up, but then they put like a cover on to trap it somehow, like the spirit can't go through a tarp or something. But uh, anyway, so it comes up and then they sometimes would even lay down in there and the spiritist, the necromancer would would act as a medium. So they would see or hear the spirit, uh, but the, the person who is, you know, the client, Saul in this case, wouldn't actually get to see or hear the spirit. Necromancy was outlawed in Israel, according to the law of God, and practitioners of necromancy and those seeking their their help, the client, could receive the death penalty under uh, Mosaic law. So Saul had had uh, outlawed them, uh, and so this this woman was like rightfully nervous, like, whoa, 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 don't you you know that Saul has outlawed uh, necromancy, and you're an Israelite man coming here. Is this a trap? Like, what's, is this a sting operation? And so Saul swears by the name of Yahweh that she will not be punished. That's, that's blasphemy. To swear by God's name, that's something that is clearly sinful according to God's law, is all of a sudden not. So she asks, you know, who do you want, who do you want me to bring up? And, and he says, Samuel, which is, I mean, this is crazy, right? Like God has commanded Israel not to have necromancers, right? Saul as the king of Israel is responsible for upholding the laws of God. Like that's the main job of a king to uphold the laws of God and to defend the borders of the kingdom. That's the main jobs of an Israelite king. Uh, But in an effort to seek the will of God, he swears by God's holy name that nothing will happen to a woman if she commits a capital offense against God's law. Are you seeing the crazy? It's like a bag of cats. It's nuts. Even crazier, of all the people you'd want to bring up from the dead to have a conversation with about what to do, a a little mentoring session, you bring up Samuel, the guy who's told you that God's ripped the kingdom from your very hands, the guy who has obeyed the law of God his whole career, like, oh, just ignore that this, like, witch is here. Um, Give me some advice. Saul, the very man who went through the religious motions to outlaw necromancy in Israel, is now feeling so desperate he's willing, just so willing, to break the law. 
doing the right things on the outside doesn't indicate a change on the inside. And even, even when there is a change on the inside, right? Like you might have a track record of doing great things. It doesn't mean that you and I aren't susceptible to slipping. How many times have we seen on TV or in the news high-profile pastor preaches righteousness, justice warrior, find out they have a secret life, you know, some kind of wife on the side or soliciting prostitutes or embezzling money? How many times have we heard about a politician who is, oh man, they're so great on public policy, they are for justice and advocacy, and they have a whole secret thing going in on the side. Like, you guys, doing the right things on the outside doesn't mean we're not susceptible to falling. We have to remain humble. Saul's story is a wake-up call for me, for you, to walk in humility. It's a warning for us to walk in community. It's a beacon pointing to certain destruction that awaits us if we don't tend tend to the interior work of the heart. the stuff that no one sees. Everybody sees when we do good things in the community. But nobody sees you when you're on your knees in prayer or when you're studying the scriptures or when you're confessing to a close friend, like here's something I'm wrestling with. Nobody sees that. But over the course of a life, oh man, they'll see the outcome. For Saul, desperate times called for desperate measures. But I want to suggest a comparison to David. See, Saul finds out that Samuel has died. He's faced with very real uncertainty about the Philistine army, and he turns first to personal religion as a way to manipulate God, and when that doesn't work, he turns to necromancy. He's a pragmatist. We are Americans. We're so pragmatic. Don't we often do it if it works? Sometimes something working isn't it isn't the litmus test for whether or not we should do it. David, on the other hand, was being hunted by Saul. Uh, he was faced with great uncertainty. Uncertainty. First, he turns to the Lord. He then turns to Samuel. He goes up to Ramah to counsel his old mentor. Then he turns to his friend Jonathan. And when Samuel died, David almost gets in trouble, but a woman named Abigail intercedes, speaks wisdom into his life, and David, at that point listens to her, and repents of his ways and chooses the way of wisdom, humility. If we want to be wise and faithful, I believe one of the lessons in this passage is that desperate times call for humility to seek wise and godly counsel and then to actually follow it. Saul had no lack of godly counsel in his career. He just didn't follow it. All right. Let's see what the passage continues to say. This time, verses 12 through 19. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I seek a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. Well, what does he look like? He asked. He's an old man wearing a robe Uh, is coming up. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, 
why have you burdened me by bringing me up? He's like, why are you bugging me, man? I'm in great distress, Saul said. You know, the Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or dreams. And so I've called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. You know what a lot of the commentaries say about this passage? This is one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. I agree. What are we to make of all of this stuff? Like, I'm at, I've got all these questions. Like, is necromancy real? And if it is, what does that say about the afterlife? And if not, then what in the heck is going on in this story? And as you might imagine, studying to preach on a passage like this meant a lot of late nights and extra hours. Um, and none of it hardly is going to make it into this sermon because we, for one, just don't have time. And two, apparently the biblical authors like don't care what 21st century people, ha- like it doesn't answer any of our questions. It, it, it's not the point of the story. And I know that that's not satisfying because I took the time to chase rabbit trails this week. And so anyway, just let me say a few things briefly to kind of scratch a little bit. We can talk later because I have done a ton of research. Okay, so here we go. Necromancy is this art of, uh, of consulting the spirits of dead people. It's referenced in the Bible, but it's also all over uh, other ancient Near Eastern texts and uh, also in, uh, in Greek texts. So like in Homer's Odyssey, if you've read that recently or not, uh, uh, Odysseus, uh, uh, reaches out to one of these necromancers and consults a spirit for advice, okay? So it's all over, not just in the ancient Near East, but also in, in, in Roman, I mean, um, ancient Greece. Uh, people believe that the spirits of the dead might have information that could help them um, that isn't available to people like you and me who are living like above the ground with our mortal lives still going on. Now, Yahweh, the living God of Israel uh, and, and the world, um, outlawed this practice not because he's like worried about the competition, like, oh, they might seek other things for advice. Um, And it's not because he's jealous. It's because most of the time, these oracles were demonic in nature, meaning that the experiences that necromancers had with spirits they believed to be dead were actually demons in their place. Uh, Deceiving spirits, the Bible often calls them. So like, here's an example, like in Isaiah 8, God confronts the people for listening to spirits of the dead, and he calls these deceiving spirits mutterers. And he says, why do you consult the dead on behalf of the living? Why do you consult mutterers instead of the living God? Like, I'm actually God and know what's going on, and you're seeking these mutterers. So the prohibition against necromancy isn't like because God feels threatened by it, but because it leads his people into being uh, misled. And and if you're misled by something, then you're you're coming up with solutions to problems that that tend away from a relationship with God, the life giver, and tend toward deception and evil. 
Now, another interesting question that I have is like, if a necromancer even has the power to, to summon someone who is the righteous dead, okay? So like in ancient Israel, there's like kind of this belief in the ancient Near East too, that, you know, there's two ways to die. You can die like a complete uh, apart from God, or you can, you can die like on the good side of your God or goddess or Yahweh in Israel's case. So like if you're in the hands of God in the afterlife, could some like witch of Endor even bug you in your soul sleep, right? Could that person even have the power to draw you up? And that's, that's a big question that scholars debate and people and all this kind of stuff. Um, and by the way, like other ancient Near Eastern kings outlawed necromancy in many of their areas as well. First of all, uh, the word in Hebrew and Aramaic for necromancer is the same cognate for ventriloquist. So they were very aware that there's a lot of charlatans. In fact, the woman in this story said nothing new that we didn't already know about what Samuel had said. She literally parroted what Samuel had prophesied to Saul in, verse, in chapter 15. Okay, so there's that going on. But also they outlawed them because they saw them as evil or dangerous. Notice that in our story, the medium never gets a chance to do her incantations or her rituals. Samuel just appears out of the blue and she clearly seems startled. Like it says in Hebrew that she cried out with a loud voice and all of a sudden she's like, whoa, this doesn't normally happen. Like you must be Saul because this is Samuel. So she's like legitimately freaked out. So if you're thinking, oh, here's this necromancer. She does this all the time. Why would you be freaked out if your stuff actually worked? It's as if God worked through this incident and said, hey, Samuel, guess what? We're going we're gonna to trip this lady out. <laughs> and hey, I'm going to wake you up from your soul sleep. It's not resurrection time yet. Uh, and I want you to go deliver this word to our buddy Saul. Okay, so that's, that's one major take that um, biblical scholars and ancient historians kind of have on the story. You don't have to buy it. It's one of them. Uh, the point is um, that Samuel does somehow appear to this woman and actually has a word for Saul in this moment. Um, and he leads with, basically, why are you bugging me? Love it. So Saul can't see Samuel. So he asks the medium what she sees. Well, he's like, he's like an Elohim, which is a Hebrew word for a god. He's like, that's a simile, he's like an Elohim. He's, he's like other than you and me. He's not solid. He's... he's He's radiating or whatever it is. Um, he's other than flesh and bone. And dun, dun, dun. What is he wearing? He's wearing a robe. Now, why that detail? Does anyone even know what Jesus wore? Never says. Never says what Jesus looks like. I mean, Jesus is like the most important <laughs> character in the Bible. We know nothing about that. Why? It's not literarily important to us. For some reason, of all the things to say about Samuel, he's wearing a robe. Well, the last time that Saul was with Samuel, a robe featured into that story as well. It was 1 Samuel 15, and Saul had just obeyed a direct order from the Lord through the Samuel. And this is, this is what Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed God is is better than the fat of rams. In other words, obedience is more valuable than the empty religious things you've been doing, okay? Now, check it out. Samuel continues. This is back in chapter 15, by the way. 
For rebellion is like the sin of divination. That's now what he's doing in chapter 28. It is like arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. Okay, so in chapter 28, we see the prophecy in chapter 15, like literally coming true. Samuel goes on, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Okay, so at this point, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul falls to his knees. He grasps at Samuel the prophet's robe, and he tears off a piece by accident. And then Samuel says, just like you've torn off my robe, so the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from your hand. Now, Samuel appears wearing a robe and informs Saul that it is David who he's giving the kingdom to. Okay. This is, I mean, it's like fulfillment. So cool. Okay. You don't have to be excited. I'm a dork. So Saul wants to know what to do about the Philistines and Samuel won't bite. Like he doesn't tell him anything about the Philistines. He is done with Saul. He has told him so many other times what is the will of God. And all he does now is reiterate what he has said before. Saul is finished. But here's some new news that Saul didn't know before. Samuel says, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me in death. Saul breaks a direct commandment from God to seek the spirit of Samuel to find out what God wants him to do with the Philistines. Sometimes, we, we get so lost in the weeds that we forget to mow the lawn. Sorry about the, I've been doing all the yard work, getting rid of a winter. That wasn't the metaphor. Um, sometimes we get so caught up in the minutia that we forget the larger mandate. When we don't hear from God, does that mean that we don't know what to do? Did Saul not remember that he was the king of Israel? He was to seek the Lord. Did you know that the ancient Israelite kings, by the way, are the only people in the kingdom required to have a quiet time? <laughs> Seriously, like the kings are supposed to read the scriptures and to obey them, to carry out those laws on the land. Like so Saul should have been doing his quiet time, doing his immersed Bible readings or whatever. Did he not know he was to seek the Lord, to know his word, to promote the living out of Torah? And did he not know that it was his mandate? He's literally called to cast out the Philistines from Israelite land. Instead, what has Saul been doing with his life? Oh, like killing the priests of the Lord and chasing David down, trying to kill him. He's got his priorities all mixed up. Sometimes desperate times in our lives really call for getting back to basics. God has given us some pretty clear standing orders about like what life is about. And you might know, not know the specific thing like, gosh, should I take this job or not? Or, or you know, should I do A or should I do B? But that doesn't mean you don't know what to do with your life. Jesus has given us some pretty clear things about like loving God and loving neighbor, about working for justice and the good of other people about trusting Jesus and encouraging one another, seeking first the kingdom of God rather than investing our lives in worry. Those things don't change. And in our anxiety about desperate choices, sometimes it's getting back to basics. And so it's so easy, and I'm in this boat too, it's so easy to let our lives get overcomplicated and overextended 
But what would going back to the basics of the gospel look, look like for you? Like, just think about that. Maybe that's some homework. What would going back to basics look like for you in this moment in your life? All right, let's wrap this up. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear again because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had not eaten anything all day or all night. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now, please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so that you may have strength to go on your way. He refused to eat and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour and kneaded it and baked bread without yeast. And then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night, that same night, they got up and left. Necromancers often required fasting before they would perform the rite. You know, so Saul has been fasting. He finds this lady in indoor. And now he is not only shaken by the news, but he is weak from fasting. The woman of indoor and his companions convince him to eat. But this is no ordinary meal. Maybe you picked it up by the ingredients. The English text says the medium butchered a fattened calf, but the Hebrew word behind butchered is sacrificed. The woman sacrificed a fattened calf, and she kneads bread together without yeast. Is there another meal in the Bible you could think about where a fattened calf is sacrificed, and then they eat it with unleavened bread? Anyone? Passover, right? This is a covenant meal. This, is a co- this isn't a snack to get your blood sugar going. This is a covenant meal. The, co- the Passover meal is a covenant meal between God and his people. It's a meal of remembrance, but it's also a meal of saying, when we eat this meal, I am with and for Yahweh, the covenant keeper, my deliverer, and my savior. And by sharing in this covenant meal with the necromancer of Endor, Saul has reached rock bottom. He has entered into a covenant meal that will truly be his last supper. He will leave that night and he will die the next day in battle with the Philistines. I'm going to end this message at the table. So if you uh, think Eric and Emily and uh, Jess are helping me serve communion, you guys could come on up and stand here. We have our um, elementary kids up for us on the third Sunday um, because communion is such an important part of our worship rhythm and life. Um, We just think it's so important that they get a chance to witness what we do and to participate in some way. So kids, we're glad you're here. We're picking up on this incredible story, you guys, from 1 Samuel 28. And we've seen how that when Saul... King Saul, when he was faced with desperate times, he turned to desperate measures. In his frantic grasping for guidance, he rebelled against God and entered into this covenant meal with a necromancer. 
And clearly, we've heard the warning against turning God into a lifeless oracle, or worse, turning to the occult for our own devices for help. But until this moment in the text and in the sermon, I don't think we've really heard, uh, heard good news. Like, I've given us some good advice that I've seen in the text, but I've not yet preached good news, and that's about ready to change. Desperate times are desperate times because... The usual way of coping with life does not work for us in desperate. Like that's the definition of being a desperate time. It's when my normal bag of tricks, my normal resources, whether that's money or a few friendships or my intellect, when it just isn't enough to cover what's going on in my life. And this is the good news that Jesus has anticipated our great need. And that he has intervened on our behalf. He has suffered for us himself, being in agony in the garden, as Elsa Ackerson read earlier from the scriptures, and later in agony on the cross. He not only shows us that through faith in the Father, life will prevail over death, but he gave himself knowing that we are too weak to make that decision for ourselves. So as we prepare to come to the table, we have an opportunity to reject the covenants we've made with the people or the things in our life that are not God. With the the things or the people in our lives that we've tried to lift up as our saviors that are not Jesus. We have an opportunity to stumble now in the right direction, to come home to the table of the new covenant in Jesus' body and Jesus' blood in his very way of life. And I want to offer this as a moment of silence to, to share uh, our hearts with the Lord. Um, Lord, just confess some of the ways that, that, that you've maybe made a, maybe not a real covenant with a fat lamb, but your go-to coping that is not the Lord and, uh, and turn to him in this moment. Lord, many of us come with uh, knowing just what it is that we've been placing our faith in uh, that is outside the bounds of who you are. Um, Lord, we confess and ask your forgiveness. Lord, there are others here today who are literally at the end of their rope, who, who are literally exhausting their resources and uh, don't know where to turn, don't know what to do. Maybe it's a decision to make outside of themselves. Maybe it is uh, a conflict of the spirit or the emotions inside. Lord, I pray for your grace and your mercy to enter and to bring people home to the safety of your arms, to the joy of forgiveness and new life. Lord, as we come to your table, to your 
your covenant meal. We place our faith in you, our trust in you, as the forgiver of sin and author of new life.